0: As the kids are making their way out, uh, I want to introduce uh, Brian O'Day. Brian uh, is going to be preaching uh, for us this morning. So Brian, his wife Kelly, and their family are with us this morning from North Carolina. Brian is one of the pastors at Pillar Church of Jacksonville, North Carolina, one of the older churches in our in the Praetorian Project, our family churches. He himself is a church planter, and he helps lead the Praetorian Project as a whole, uh, doing a, ph- a phenomenal job, and we're blessed to have him here, uh, bringing the word this morning. Uh, after uh, Brian preaches, uh, he's going to close in prayer, and then he's, also, he's actually going to stay up here, and we're going to have a short time of Q&A. So if you have questions for Brian just about the Praetorian Project, about church planting in general, about church planting in military communities specifically, you can be thinking about that. And we'll take about five or so minutes for Brian to kind of answer your questions. Maybe you wanna know what's what's next for the Praetorian Project. Where are we thinking about planting? Where are our existing churches? Uh, How did the Praetorian Project get started? All, Whatever you might wanna ask, uh, we'll have a time of Q&A. Uh, afterwards, but uh, we're thankful for for Brian. Let's give him a hand uh, this morning. just thank him for being here.
1: Man, it is good to be here this morning. Um, I'm not sure how you got here, uh, honestly. Um, you may be here because Uh, You just moved to the area recently and uh, you just started looking for a healthy church and you found this one and you didn't know that uh, this church is only a couple of months old. Uh, Or maybe you've been looking for a church for a long time and uh, were searching and found this one. Um, or maybe you've been on a spiritual journey where you realize that you desperately need uh, the one true God to help you, and you started looking for churches, and uh, you found this one. So I I don't really know how you got here, um, but I want you to know that God and His sovereign plan has been orchestrating things uh, long before you got here, and uh, it was a year and a half ago that uh, Jared Huntley and Andrew McDaniel and myself, we came out here for what we call a vision trip. uh, And the goal was to see if God was leading Jared and or Andrew to come out here and plant a church in the near future. Uh, We also had dinner that trip with uh, Keith and Erica Manry and their family and sat around a fire pit with Keith and talked about what it would look like for them to join uh, this church plant if it would have happened. And so that was a year and a half ago in my mind when I took that trip. I was like, well, this is kind of interesting and this will be cool if maybe God would plan a church in, in three years or so, you know, Keith will probably be moved on by then, but this is, this is all interesting, but uh, it's really exciting to be here and to uh, see this church gathering and to see this church uh, worshiping the Lord together. One of the joys of my job as executive director of Praetorian Project is I get to travel all over the world and worship with churches that are very similar to this one all over the place earlier this year I was in Okinawa, Japan at one of our churches, and it's very similar to this one. Uh, They're in a very, very different culture. And so uh, our prayer is that if you're in the military, as you move around from uh, location to location, that you'll find a healthy church home uh, for you and for your family. Uh, This morning... Uh, I know that you guys have been working through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And what a great letter, what a great book that is. I I trust it's been uh, edifying for you as you've uh, been uh, working through that letter if you've been gathering together. And I think we are... Uh, You guys just finished a passage about God's design for marriage. And uh, next week, stay tuned, you're gonna see God's design for the household with parents and with children. So you're like in the nitty gritty part of Ephesians, like, oh man, all that, like, high, you know, uh, God brought us from death to life, made us alive together with Christ, like, that was big ethereal stuff back at the beginning of Ephesians. Now you're in. Children, obey your parents. Now you're in husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands, right? That's like, oh, oh, my actual life, okay. Well, this morning what we're going to do is uh, we're going to look at a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote seven y- several years after his letter to the Ephesians. He's still writing to Ephesus, but he's writing to Timothy, one of his proteges, and he's writing to Timothy, who is pastoring in Ephesus. Uh, and we call the letter Second Timothy. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Timothy Chapter three. that's where we're going to be this morning. Second Timothy chapter three. if you uh, have have a Bible, Second Timothy is a really small letter in the back of your New Testament. They usually put a table of contents in your Bible if you need help finding it. Second Timothy chapter three. Uh, in this letter it's a short letter. The Apostle Paul is in prison. Uh, Most of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, he's in prison, but uh, he's in prison and he's most likely about to be executed for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul is pretty convinced as he writes this letter that this is one of the last letters he's going to write. It's probably the last letter that he's going to write to Timothy. He says at the end of the letter that he's being poured out as a drink offering. So Paul's about to die. That's that's his context. He's in prison. He's about to be executed, and he knows it. He's about to die. So these are some of his last words that we have. Timothy is pastoring in Ephesus, and things are really difficult for Timothy. Timothy is about to quit. He's about to quit pastoring. Paul tells him that he needs to fan into flame the gift of God that he has. You don't fan into flame a flame that's going bright and hot. You fan into flame something that's about to go out. And so Timothy seems like he is about to quit. He's living, Timothy's living in difficult times. And brothers and sisters in Christ here, you've probably figured it out already, but we live in difficult times. We live in difficult times. And I'm sure that God's desire for you in the difficult times that you're in is that you would actually grow in godly maturity in the midst of those difficult times. You see so often when difficult times come upon us, we want to get out of them or we want to get through them and we tell ourselves that well maybe God has something for me on the other side of this difficult time. Maybe I just need to like drop into survival mode and just wait it out and then on the other side God will show me something. But what I want you to see is that God actually has growth for you that you could mature in Christ in the midst of these difficult times. So my main proposition for you from this text this morning is this. Grow in godly maturity in the midst of difficult times. Grow in godly maturity in the midst of difficult times. Pick it up with me in 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at the beginning of the chapter. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceits, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people." For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you equipped for every good work let us pray Lord we need your help we know that there are difficult times all around us Lord I'm convinced that there are many here this morning who are in the midst of difficulty that they are struggling to even know which way's up So Lord, I pray that we would see in your text truths about how we can cling to you, how we can know you, and that you can actually grow us in the midst of these times of difficulty. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that are contained in them. We thank you for the help that we can find in these truths. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, grow in godly maturity in the midst of difficult times. I want you to notice the very beginning and the very end of our passage. In verse 1, he says, understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. That's how he starts the chapter. And then at the very end of the chapter, verse 17, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So do you see how the Apostle Paul is saying, look, there's going to be times of difficulty, but I want you to grow to the point where you can be complete and equipped for every good work. So he wants to see Timothy grow in the midst of these times of difficulty. Times of difficulty becoming mature and complete in the middle of it. How that work? Like, How can we grow in the midst of times of difficulty. Is it even possible that these times of difficulty could be something that God would use to grow us and mature us in the faith? Is that even possible? And I think the question for each of us to ask is, do we actually want that? Do we want to grow and mature even in the times of difficulty? We're going to see beautifully in this passage how this can be true in your life. Uh, the structure of our passage this morning, we're going to uh, walk through one truth that we need to know and like get a hold of in our minds, and then two instructions for us to obey. So one truth and then two instructions. For, so the truth for us this morning, from verses one through nine, verses one through nine, difficult times are here, but they will not prevail. Difficult times are here, but they will not prevail when Paul writes in verse 1 that there will be times of difficulty, he is not writing about some distant future for Timothy, or he's not writing about some distant future that's beyond our time, right? You might be tempted to read in the last days and be like, all right, well, we're not there yet. I don't see fire raining down from heaven yet, so we're not there. No, no, no. The Apostle Paul is talking about the days that Timothy is in or is about to be in. Okay, What he's actually saying here is that in these last days, times of difficulty are going to continually be coming upon you. Right, So Timothy's in some times of difficulty, and Paul says, hey, there's more times of difficulty that are going to be coming to you. That might sound like bad news, like, hey, I know things are really hard, but don't worry, they're going to get worse. Dude, you're. So, I thought this. You're trying to encourage me here. What do you, What are you doing? Well, he's he's clear. You know, it's not helpful when somebody when you're struggling and like you don't even know which way's up, and somebody comes up and says, "Man, it's really not that bad." Like, no, no, it's that bad. And then you're trying to convince them that it really is that bad. Paul kind of takes the opposite approach here. He says, "Oh, you think it's bad? Now it's going to get worse." Dude, give me some help here. All right, give me some help. But the Apostle Paul wants to be clear about these difficult times. And so he starts to describe these difficult times. And it's interesting what Paul describes about the difficult times. Starting in verse 2, he talks exclusively about sinful people. Where do these difficult times come from? Well, they come from sinful people. Sinful people create difficult times for godly people. It's important that we understand that. So often we tempt to blame impersonal forces for the difficult times that are all around us. But the reality is is that the difficult times that the Apostle Paul is talking about are the difficult times that are brought about by sinful people. Let's look through the list again. We could literally spend the rest of today talking about this list that the Apostle Paul gives us starting in verse 2. I will not do that, but just look at some of these. Verse 2, For people in these last days will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, Man, that one made the list? That's interesting. Who's preaching next week? Man, set you right up. Grab that one. Ungrateful? We live in an entitled culture, don't we? Some of us, we're entitled. I deserve this. The vacation, advertisers use it. The vacation you deserve. Let me be clear. You deserve hell and damnation. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. Hell and damnation. Damnation. Not a vacation. It's not what we deserve. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceits, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We're in Texas, right? Right? They're supposed to be like all Christians in Texas. That's the belief, right? Everybody here is a Christian. I had to stop at a gas station. We drove from uh, Katy, Texas this morning to be here. We stopped at a gas station. Man, there were a lot of people that had boats hooked up and camping supplies and hunting supplies and everything else at the gas station. Not a lot of people looking like they were going to church. Not a lot of people with Bibles under their arms. Um... There's a lot of us loving pleasure rather than lovers of God. Does any of that seem to describe our day? Right? Does any of it seem to describe the day in which we live? He goes on to describe that these people, starting in verse six, they creep into households and they capture weak women, women who are burdened with sins and they're led astray by various passions. This also describes our day, does it not? We, we as a culture, we as a society are, are doing horrific things to womanhood. And uh, abusive relationships prevail all over our culture, all over our country. Uh, and regrettably, it has, started, it has slipped into the church as well. So these sinful people have detrimental effects to themselves and detrimental effects to others. If you're a maturing Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to realize the truth, not just that these difficult times are here, not just that these difficult times are brought about by sinful people, not just that these times are actually getting worse as we see later on in the passage. I want you to see the truth That is encouraging in this section through verse 9. Notice verse 9. These sinful people that are like Janice and Jombries, these sinful people that uh, capture weak women, these sinful people that are doing the whole list, notice in verse 9, they will not get very far. These sinful people will not get very far. Difficult times brought out by sinful people will not prevail. It's not going to last. So whatever you're interacting with, whatever sinful people, whatever difficult times you're interacting with, you can remind yourself of this deep-seated truth that's all throughout the Scriptures, this isn't going to last. It may last for the rest of my time on this earth, but it will not last for eternity. At some point, the Lord is going to say enough and He's going to end it. And he can end it at any moment. So these difficult times brought on by these sinful people will not prevail. It will not last. This is a powerful truth. And we need to understand this. But before we move on to what we as Christians need to be doing, we need to uh, not move on assuming which camp we're in, right? Because up until this point, you've probably assumed, okay, I'm one of the good guys And all those people out there are the bad guys, right? So like all these sinful people, they're they're all the people out there. But we must address a group of people. And I'm sure that group is represented in this room. I'd be shocked if it's not represented in this room. And if you're in this group that we're going to talk about, that the Apostle Paul talks about, you are in grave danger. You are in grave danger. Look at verse 5. At the very end of this list of what the sinful people look like, he says that they have the appearance of godliness. There's a group of people that are really sinful that have an appearance of godliness. This should cause every single one of us to examine ourselves. Because we're here, right? We're dressed up. We, well, relatively, like pillar dressed up, right? So we're we're relatively dressed up. We got here at the crack of 1030 this morning on a Sunday, right? So we, y'all are out. You got Bibles out. You're listening attentively. You appear godly. But is that true at your core? Is there godliness deep down inside of you? You see, some of you look godly on the outside, but in reality, you're gossips, you're slanderers, you love money instead of God. What if God called you to do something that required you to take half the pay that you currently have? Would you be able to do that? You love money instead of God. You love pleasure instead of God. If there was an opportunity to show the love of Christ to somebody or to uh, enjoy a movie or go to the lake or do something else, which one are you more apt to do? Do you love pleasure more or do you love God more? Do you, again, I'll, I'll set Keith up for next week. Do you think children disobeying their parents is cute? or do you think it's a sin? Do you think it's cute, or do you think it's a sin? Whether you're a child or whether you're a parent, it really matters. Do you see it as sinful and against God's design for the home, or do you see it as cute? Far too many of us see it as cute. Like, oh, isn't that cute? They just disobeyed mom or dad. See, looking godly on the outside is actually more dangerous for us. Because the reality is, is our sin earns us a wage. And the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome, he writes that the wage, what our sin has earned us, is eternal death. It's what our sin has earned us. Looking godly on the outside actually makes our predicament even worse because our outward appearance is apt to fool you and fool other people into thinking you're godly. So if you just clean up the outside, you are going to be tempted to think that you're godly on the inside. As I said, this is a grave situation. But it gets even worse because notice the command that is given for genuine followers of Jesus at the end of verse 5, after the whole list of sinful people and what it looks like, at the end of it, he tells Timothy, avoid such people. Avoid such people. So not only are you cleaned up on the outside, which is apt to cause you to be confused about where you are before God, not only is being cleaned up on the outside going to uh, confuse people around you, but as genuine Christians start to realize that you're slandering, or that you love pleasure more than you love God, or that you uh, love money more than you love God, any of those things, real quick, quick, real Christians are going to start to distance themselves from you. Again, this is a grave situation. Thankfully, if you're still breathing air, it's not too too late for you. It's not too late for you. What you need is to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. That word repent might not be a word that you use in everyday language. It literally just means to turn around and go a different direction. So if you're going the direction of the list in verses 2-5, through and you're going down that path What you need to do is repent away from that path and trust in Jesus Christ. And what Jesus Christ does is He lives the perfect life that you and I are unable to live. He lives the perfect life that you and I are unable to live. On our best day, on our best day, what we're able to do is clean up the outside. On our best day, we are able to appear godly. What Jesus does, Jesus lived a perfect life Inside and out. And he says that everyone who believes in him, his perfect life will count for them. And so that's what you need. That's what I need. We need Jesus' perfect life to count for us because we cannot live the perfect life. Anybody, You've heard some of the most sinful, wicked people that you've ever run, run across and be like, well, nobody's perfect. That is true. I agree with you. None of us are perfect except for Jesus. And I need His life to count for me. Because God's standard is perfection. God's standard to be with Him forever is perfection. And so I need some way for Jesus' life to count for me. And God has allowed that to happen. And Jesus' perfect life can count for me. And it can count for you. The other thing we need is, remember I said that our sin has earned us a wage and that wage is eternal death. So we need Christ's sacrificial death to count for us. Right? So our sin, again, even if we look good on the outside, our sin has earned for us death. And so what I need is for Jesus' death to count for me. That's exactly what he did. He died in our place for our sins, for everyone who places our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ as our only hope for salvation. That's what we need. So if you see this list and you're like, oh, that's me, you're in the right place. And again, it's not too late. As long as you're breathing air, it is not too late. Turn from your sin and believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation. It's important for us to realize difficult times are here, but they will not prevail. Now, what are we supposed to do in response to this truth? What do we do? What, what instructions does Paul have for Timothy that can be helpful for us? Well, the first instruction is in verses ten through fifteen. Verses ten through fifteen. Pattern your life after godly examples. Pattern your life after godly examples. As I said, Peter or sorry, Timothy is discouraged, and he is seemingly about to quit the work that God has given him. But the good news is that Timothy is actually prepared for this moment of discouragement. He is prepared because Timothy has godly examples in his life. Paul reminds Timothy that he has witnessed and followed Paul's life. He has seen Paul suffer greatly at the hands of sinful people. And yet, Paul has continued as a godly example. And we see what a godly example looks like. Notice verse 10 you have followed my teaching, my conduct. So, Paul has had godly teaching and godly conduct, his aim of life, his faith, his patience, his love, his steadfastness, his persecutions and suffering. Right? So all of those things, Paul has maintained the faith through all of those things. He's remained faithful and patient and steadfast in the midst of suffering and persecutions that has come his way, that have come his way. And he encourages Timothy, continue to follow my example. Later on, Paul reminds Timothy in verse 15 that he has actually seen this type of example. He has seen this type of example from childhood. We learn earlier on in this letter that Timothy had a godly mother and a godly grandmother who have brought him up according to the Scriptures from his childhood. Brothers and sisters, I understand that many of you do not have some of the advantages that Timothy had. You didn't grow up in a Christian household. You did not grow up with a Christian mother. You did not grow up with a Christian grandmother. You didn't grow up with a Christian father, grandfather. I understand that. But I want to encourage you today that you need godly examples in your life. If you're going to walk this Christian walk... You need godly examples in your life. And you need to seek them out and you need to pattern your life after their life. Not every single aspect of their life, but the godly example that they're showing you, that's going to help you see like, oh, that's what it looks like to do this in my culture, in my day. Okay? Now, when I say you need godly examples in your life and you need to seek them out and you need to pattern your life after them, what I'm saying, I'm talking about people you actually know and who actually know you as well. Okay? We need to make that differentiation in our day. Okay, so I'm not talking about celebrity pastors that you can get on podcasts and YouTube and watch them. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about social media content creators and influencers and everything else. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people that you could actually go into their home and they could actually come into your home. That type of godly example. Type of godly examples that you can see them interact with their spouse and their children, and they can see you interact with your spouse and your children. They can see you in your actual life, and you can watch their godly example, and they can actually speak into your life. These godly examples, as you pattern your life after them, They will spur you on to live the type of life that will actually grow in maturity in the midst of difficult times. You see, bad examples will teach you to escape. And there's plenty of people that will teach you to do this. Bad examples will say, oh, you're in this difficult circumstance. Well, let's get you out of that in any way that you possibly can. Oh, your marriage is difficult. Let's get you out of that as fast as possible. Your kids are difficult. Let's ship them away or get you out of that situation as fast as possible. Or let's just blame someone else. So many bad examples will teach you to escape. You just need to get get out of the unpleasant circumstances. Good examples will teach you to endure in the midst of difficult times. Bad examples will teach you that if you just have enough faith that difficult times will never come to you. Ah, the problem, the reason you're in this this difficult time is because you don't have enough faith. It's called the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. False gospel. And it's preached all over this city. It's preached all over this country. And there's other pockets of the world where it is prevalent. They just tell you difficult times should never come to the believer. Good examples will teach you the plain truth that is in verse 12. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you passed third grade reading comprehension, that is a plain, simple sentence. You would have to do all kinds of hermeneutical gymnastics to get out of what that passage means. Persecution is going to come. Difficult times are going to come. Godly examples are going to teach you to endure in the midst of them. So who do you know who is a good example? Think about it. Who can you pattern your life after? How can you pattern your life after them? What do you see them doing that you need to do as well? Don't look at them as some sort of super Christian like, wow, they're he's really great to his wife. Man, that's awesome. Cool for him, but I'm going to keep being a jerk to my wife. No, no, no. Pattern your life after him. How can you do so? How can you get closer with them to see their example more clearly? Think through these things. Pattern your life after godly examples. That is one of the ways that we mature in the midst of difficult times. Instruction number two in 16 and 17. Instruction number two in verses 16 and 17. Reap the profits of God's Word. Reap the profits of God's Word. We see here in these last two verses a beautiful statement about the Word of God. Specifically, verse 16... Verse 16 says this, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That is a powerful truth about the Word of God. This is one of the go-to statements for us when we explain what we believe about the Scriptures. And we, if you're a member of this church, if as a member of my church, we believe this statement Sentence. We believe this truth that all scripture is breathed out by God. We would say that every word is inspired by God. This church, Pillar Church of San Antonio, has a statement of beliefs. One of the sentences about the scriptures is this We believe that every word of the Bible is inspired, and that in its original form, the Bible has no error. This is a massive truth that God wrote a book. It's a massive truth. It will drastically alter your life to realize God wrote a book. And if God wrote a book, He could mean every word that He wrote and that He had written down. I understand we're reading translations unless you have an original autograph in your possession, which I highly doubt. Um, I understand that. And so we've got translation, we've got interpretation, we've got things we've got to do, we've got some work we've got to do to rightly understand it. But it's important to realize God did write a book, and we need to figure out what it says. So it's a massive truth, and it should be understood and it should be fought for and upheld by every member of this church that God wrote a book, that every word of it is inspired, it is without error. However, that's not where Paul lands this thought. Okay. It's a massive theological truth, but he, he doesn't land there because Timothy actually already knows that truth. He's not telling Timothy, hey, Timothy, you need to realize that the Scriptures are God-breathed. That's not what he's doing. He actually says you need to be reminded that you've been acquainted with these sacred writings from childhood and you need to allow God's Word to have its effect in you. And that's what verse 17 is. That the man of God, you, Timothy, and all men of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul teaches Timothy that the way that he is going to grow in the midst of difficult times is to reap the benefits of the Scriptures. These Scriptures that are profitable for teaching, that are profitable for reproof, that are profitable for correction, that are profitable for training in righteousness, these Scriptures are what are going to mature you in the midst of difficult times. So if you're wondering, man, how do I get the energy, how do I get the will that I need to endure in difficult times, it's from the Scriptures. It's allowing the Scriptures to have their effect in us. Man, how often, if you are immersed in the Scriptures, do you live life and you're like, this is overwhelming, this is too much, I can't deal with this, and then you somehow crawl into bed and you somehow go to sleep, though you may wrestle through all the difficulty that you're going with, and you wake up in the morning and you open up the Scriptures and the Lord has a truth for you that you're like, oh yeah. And everything just becomes more clear to you. You're like, oh yeah, that person's just being really sinful and I need to love them. I I need to love them. Oh yeah, I was being a jerk to my wife. I need to go and confess to her oh yeah, the issue is I'm just being selfish. And I need to count others more significant than myself, myself, right? God's Word is where we find the knowledge and the strength and the instructions that we need to mature in difficult times. We must reap the benefit of God's Word. It is the way that we mature in the faith intellectually affirming doctrinal truths is not enough. It's on the path to where we need to go. But it is not enough in and of itself. We must allow the Scriptures to have their effect in our lives. What this church needs, a couple months old, this church, Pillar Church of San Antonio, what this church needs are members who are being transformed by the Word of God. That's why we gather together and we sit still for 35 to 45 minutes or when Jared preaches an hour and a half or whatever it is, right? We sit under the preached Word. And we want the Word of God to transform our lives. We get up and we open up the Scriptures for ourselves. We get into discipleship groups and we, we speak the Scriptures into one another's lives. This church needs members that are being transformed by the Word of God and allowing the Word of God to have its effect in your lives that you would be complete and equipped for every good work. If you're wondering what we need in the Praetorian Project, all the churches that we have um, across the Praetorian Project, we need an army of Christians, pun intended, who are being transformed by the Word of God in our actual lives and equipped to go and do good works in our neighborhoods and in our workspaces, in the barracks, on ships all over the world, in fighting positions, in the spouses' gatherings, in the parks on military installations where people go and their kids play and the adults talk. That's what we need. We need... Christians that in all of those circumstances are allowing God's Word to transform us and complete us and equip us for every good work that God has for us. That's what we need. In total, across our 12 churches in the Praetorian Project, we have, on the average Sunday morning, we have a little over 1,300 people gathering together of those 1300 people gathering together each week, more than 75% of those are active duty military or military veterans or their immediate family members. So what would it look like if all of those people, if all of those people were allowing God's word to transform our lives? And then it would have as effect that we would be completed and equipped for every good work that God has for us in all of those places. What would that look like? I don't know, but I'm staying tuned to find out. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to seeing what God would do through us. All right, so that's like, what's God going to do through us? No clue. Let me, before we finish, as we wrap up, just a few practical things that you can live out this week. Practical things. I've got three of them. Number one, I encourage you to do this. This is going to be the hard part. Name the difficulty. Name the difficulty. Like when I say times of difficulty, which I've probably said 37 times during this sermon, what is that for you right now? Write it down. Text yourself. Make a note in your phone. Journal it in, uh, in the margin of your Scriptures, wherever. What is the time of difficulty for you right now? And understandably, it may be a sinful person that is causing you deep issues right now. It may be that you're the sinful person that's causing the problems in your life, and you need to confront that. You need to repent of your sin. You need to trust in Jesus Christ for the first time or for the thousandth time. Name the difficulty. Number two, build your bullpen. Build your bullpen. Uh, One thing I know about the leadership of this church is they desperately desire to be in a one-on-one discipleship relationship. That you would be in a relationship with another person where you guys sit down and you talk about the Scriptures and how the Scriptures are growing you and transforming you in your walk with Christ. I I am convinced that they desperately desire to see that happen in your life that you would be in a one-on-one discipleship relationship. And so I encourage you to go seek that out. Start that process today. I'm sure uh, any of the leaders of the church would love to like, how do I do do that? Yeah, I I want to do that. I want to be in a relationship with another brother or sister in Christ where we're just going to look at the Scriptures and how the Scriptures are transforming my life and their life in a one-on-one relationship. Um, You should start that process today. And I would encourage you to have the first meeting within the next week. Just commit to do that. Be in one of those relationships, okay? But I said build your bullpen. So just like baseball, man, Jared, I I weaved a baseball analogy in. I'm really, I don't like baseball. I don't really watch baseball a whole lot. But like baseball teams, because pitching is a really difficult job, um, baseball teams don't just hire one pitcher. They've got, like, a whole bunch of pitchers that hang. Like, first baseman, you need, like, one and maybe a backup that can, like, do all the other stuff. But, like, a pitcher, you need need a bullpen of pitchers. So when I think of, like, godly examples in my life, I don't just want one guy. I want, like, 10 or 12 guys that I can look up to and just watch them walk through life and have them speak into my life. So build out your bullpen. Have, have somebody you're walking with on a weekly basis or maybe every other week or whatever the case is, but I would encourage you to build lots of godly examples into your life. Look at what's godly in them. Specifically see them live out Christian maturity in their difficult times and that they would encourage you in your difficult times. Build your bullpen. And number three, commit to God's word. Commit to God's word. God's word should be the loudest influence in your life. It should be the loudest influence in your life more than somebody that you're in a one-on-one discipleship relationship with, more than even the other godly examples that you have in your life, more than your spouse, more than your kids, more than your parents. The loudest influence in your life should be the Word of God. So commit to it. Commit to it. Commit to not just know it and study it, but to apply it in your life. So what you've seen in the book of Ephesians, the Bible says let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Read that, understand it, and apply it in your life. The Bible says, you'll see this next week, children, obey your parents. It also says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but instead, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Read that. Study it. Think through what that means. And apply it to your life. Allow God's Word to transform you. Whatever you read and study in God's Word, Get to the point where you rightly understand what it is that it's telling you and apply it into your life. Do not allow it just to stay intellectual. Apply it to your actual life. Commit to God's Word. Again, these are just some practical examples to live out the charge this morning. And the charge is this. Grow in godly maturity in the midst of difficult times. I am so thankful to partner with you guys. I love you guys. Let's pray. Lord, I am sure that there are a host of difficulties that are weighing on the minds of those who are gathered here this morning. And Lord, it comforts, comforts me greatly to know that you know every single one of them. None of them are a surprise to you. None of them have you scratching your head, wondering what in the world you're going to do to fix it. It's so comforting to me. I pray it's comforting to those who are here. Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength and the courage to seek out godly examples in our life, that we would follow them, that we would see people who uh, actually endure and grow in maturity in the midst of difficult times instead of running away from them, and that we would follow their example. Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to reap the benefits of your Word, that our reading and studying of your Scriptures would not become merely an academic or a knowledge-based endeavor, but instead that we would be transformed by your Word. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. you,
0: Brian, for that word. So uh, I want to take just a couple minutes. Oh, okay, I thought you were about to run away. So, no. I want to take a couple minutes, just do a, a little bit of Q&A. Uh, so as I, as I said earlier, Brian's the executive director of the Praetorian Project. Some of you might be hearing that for the first time, and you have no idea what that is, and, and maybe Brian can share a little bit more um, so others of you are familiar with that. Uh, but it's a good opportunity to hear directly from him on what's happening in the project right now, uh, what what our goals are, uh, what God has been doing. Uh, so does anybody want to start us off? If not, I'm going to start lobbing questions out of But any, any of you guys want to ask a question? Kyle, yeah. Are there any other churches besides Pillar within the Praetorian project?
1: Yeah, good question. So um, all of the churches in the Praetorian Project are called Pillar Church Of, name the city. So literally, if you roll into your new military community, you can go into Google and start typing Pillar Church Of and see if there's one nearby. Yeah. That's what I did this morning to get here. Started typing Pillar Church Of, and the team I, I here text, had it right. I texted
0: you the address.
1: Well, I've, I wanted to verify, because I was preaching. <laughs> I know y'all have moved a little bit, so yeah. Keith, yeah. So Brian, I question, everyone
0: else's benefit, why
1: military? Yeah, so um, there's two big reasons. His question was, why military communities? One, uh, reaching the military community has some unique barriers. So uh, we have a conviction that every Christian should be in a healthy local church, right? So we just believe that all Christians should be in healthy local churches. We believe that the church is Jesus Christ's vehicle for evangelism and for discipleship, for godly maturity. Everything I talked about today, like a presupposition that I have, is that you're going to be doing this in the context of a local church. So we believe that. And there are many barriers to military service members and their families to be a part of a healthy local church, especially for a long season of time. Okay? Um, so if you move around regularly and you're actively looking for a church, on average, uh, this is anecdotal. Nobody's like done a study or anything, but anecdotally, uh, on average, it's taking people six months or more to find a church. And that's people who like roll into town and say, I want to find a church. I'm looking for a church it's taken them six months, sometimes a year to find a church. So if you're moving every two, three, four, five years, and it's taking you six months to a year to find a church, all of a sudden there's a lot of your like Christian life that has you not in a church. Okay? And so we're trying to shrink that church search uh, challenge for uh, highly transient people, for uh, military families specifically, as they move around. Okay? So that's one reason. The second reason is, uh, who's active duty military, guys? Okay, so um, I I served, I did 10 years active duty in the Marine Corps, I'm sorry. Uh, Not really, I'm not sorry, but um, here's the reality. You're either going to die young or you're going to have a second career, okay? And a lot of times guys don't realize those two things, all right? Uh, I want you to wrestle through the reality that you might die young, and I want to point you to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I also want you to realize that you're going to have a second career, and if you're a maturing believer in Jesus Christ, that God may be calling you to use your second career like he's done for me and so many others around the project, that you may be called to use your second career in full-time vocational ministry to plant churches, to be a missionary, to be a military chaplain, something like that, so that uh, you would advance the gospel with your second career. Like we use the word retire for like 38-year-olds, like for 42-year-olds, for 46-year-olds. Like, man, in ministry, my goal is to be preaching when I'm 80. So like there's a lot of life left. There's a lot of vocational life left. And so we believe God's going to call many to use their second career to advance the gospel by planting churches, by pastoring churches, by being military chaplains. All those things.
0: Are our churches military churches?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, No, we're not military churches. We're churches in military communities. Uh, None of our churches meet on the installation. Uh, I can't really conceive a situation where we would meet on an installation, maybe overseas, Uh, but we're in military communities. So we actually wanna see the gospel bridge the gap that is between military and civilian. Uh, I would guess in San Antonio, the gap between military and civilian is uh, a relatively narrow gap in places like Hawaii, in places like Okinawa, in other places, that gap is more pronounced. Um, but we want to see the gospel bridge the gap between military and civilian. Uh, I got the active duty veterans in the room. Eustace, sir? Awesome. Man, great. You guys actually help bridge the gap between, because you can kind of speak military, but it's not like your day-to-day in and out anymore. So you can kind of speak military, you can also speak civilian, and so uh, you can be a really good bridge uh, for that, and I'm, I'm really thankful you guys are here. What, uh, what authority does uh, Praetorian project fall under? Yeah, that's good. So uh, the short answer is none. Um, we don't, uh, so the Praetorian Project as a whole uh, doesn't fall under any other authority. Uh, and also the Praetorian Project itself does not have authority over the churches. Uh, and so I loved what uh, Jared said when he prayed for Praetorian Project. This is something that you as a church are a part of. Uh, legally speaking, we're an association of churches. So the member churches of the Praetorian Project actually own the Praetorian Project. The member churches of the Praetorian Project are who can fire me. Um, And so uh, the Praetorian Project is an association of autonomous churches. Uh, We believe in church autonomy, that every church uh, has an authority unto itself, Uh, but each of those autonomous churches choose to work together. Uh, And so really the only thing Praetorian Project owns, so to speak, is the name and the logo. That's about all we own. And so churches voluntarily participate together with us.
0: So much like the Southern Baptist Convention is a voluntary cooperation. Churches voluntarily cooperating together for the purpose of the Great Commission in North America and around the world. That's basically what the relationship is amongst the churches and the Praetorian Project. It's a voluntary cooperation to plant churches and military communities worldwide and to do it together. Yeah. Um, because it's better to do it together.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah, we do need to work together to do what we feel like God's calling us to do. Absolutely. So, do all of them have
0: relatively the same values
1: and mission, just with a different. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Relatively. I like how you said that. Relatively the same. So, um, again, all of our churches are autonomous. So, uh, we cannot come down from on high and say everybody's going to do this, this, or that. but we all work together and there are things we agree to together. Um, But they all kind of take on their own personality. So don't think that it's like going to Starbucks in Okinawa. It's not. Um, There are differences um, because communities are different. San Antonio, Texas is not like Jacksonville, North Carolina, is not like Washington, D.C., is not like San Diego, California, is not like Okinawa, Japan. All right. So those communities are different, and the churches are seeking to serve their unique community, and um, they're led by their own pastors, and so the the leadership of the churches have their own personality, and we want guys to to exert that personality, and then we want to learn from each other. One of the things we do is we get together on a regular basis and we wanna learn from each other and we do it all the time. Like Here this morning, I'm like, oh man, I like how they do that. Oh, I like how they do that. Uh, and so I'll take it and tell other people about it and we'll apply that in Jacksonville.
0: All right, one more uh, and then we gotta wrap up. So where where are we heading next? Yeah. What locations? Are we looking at as a family of churches where, there's, where we see need to plant churches in military communities?
1: Yeah, good. So um, right now we are concentrated in the Washington, D.C., northern Virginia area, eastern North Carolina, southern California, Japan, ignoring this one for a second. The reason we're in those four areas is because we started this endeavor to try to reach the Marine Corps communities. And so that gets us about 80% of the Marine Corps, so that's how we started. Uh, and a few years ago, we, we kind of rolled out the map again, and we were like, all right, if God's calling us to expand this to the other services, how do we need to do that? And so we started talking about different areas, different communities that we need to focus on to be able to reach the other military services as well. And uh, three areas really jumped off the map. One was Central Texas. Texas is like the most military of all the, uh, the greatest chance for you to be stationed here than anywhere else. And so uh, Texas just jumped off the map at us. Uh, the other one is the uh, Eastern Virginia area, so Norfolk, Virginia, huge concentration of Navy, obviously, but also uh, other services represented there. And then Northwest Washington State, uh, joint Base lewis McCord, that area in uh, Northwest Washington State. And so, um, those are the three areas. Those areas have a high concentration of military, uh, and also those three areas have a high concentration of veterans. There are some places that are military communities where veterans get out and leave. There are other places where uh, Veterans get out and stay, and those three areas happen to be places where veterans tend to get out and stay, and it makes it better for church planting residencies that I know you guys are going to be talking about, and uh, all sorts of things that really help the mission. Amen.
0: Amen. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate cool. appreciate your Thanks, time, brother. Huh? Yep. Appreciate you.